0: Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations, and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist, and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade, and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing, or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. We talk a lot about the importance of story on this podcast and about storytelling as a portal to learning. In today's episode, we get to learn from a storytelling master. I'm here with Rick Stone, CEO of StoryWork International. Rick has spent a lifetime crafting stories in many sectors, including healthcare. He's the co-creator of StoryCare, a web-based product to help healthcare organizations improve patient safety and support team-based health professional education. He also created the Living Stories program for Novant Health, which supports patients in telling their life stories in service of improving their health outcomes. I think you're in for a treat in today's episode. Our conversation touched on the role of literature and art in cultivating empathy in medical professionals, the power of emotional intelligence, the narrative structure of the brain, and how story is a powerful reagent to rewire the brain and help us learn new perspectives and points of view, and the difference between case studies and stories. I'm your host, Alex Howson, and this is Right Medicine. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine, I'm here today with Rick Stone, and we're going to talk about some of the issues he raises in his new book, "Story Intelligence." Welcome, Rick.
1: Oh, pleasure to be here, Alexandra.
0: It's really Did- great to see you. Could you please introduce yourself for our listeners?
1: Well, it depends upon you want the long story or the short story, because there's always a story, right? But I've been, for a long time been working with story and exploring its applications, both in. Um, personal healing. So I have an early book that I wrote back in the nineties called the healing art of storytelling, but I've also been looking at how we can apply it in all kinds of venues. And one of those is healthcare. So I've been weaving together many facets of what I've learned about story and bringing them into and applying them in settings like healthcare. And some of these are ancient lessons And some of these are more contemporary insights that have come from things like MRI studies and what we're learning about how the brain functions and works. Mm -hmm. So uh, I find the weaving together of ancient wisdom with contemporary science uh, feels very compatible with for me. And I think there's a lot to be learned from both.
0: I'm really curious on how you do your research when you're weaving together such different traditions and resources.
1: Well, you know, I, in another lifetime, I was in a doctoral program in psychology and, uh, and to the consternation and, and upset of my parents, I dropped out to go study painting in Chicago. So I've always uh, straddled both the arts and the sciences and you may hear a rumbling of thunder right now there's storms moving through atlanta right now (laughs) serious storms yeah Yeah, so can't do anything about that Uh, but um and so i've always found great solace and and interest in looking at how researchers who define a problem and try to narrow in on a on how things are working and why they work the way they do Uh, but i've also come at it from a more artistic point of view as well for me, story is both an art and a science.
0: And like medicine.
1: Like medicine. So there's so much of medicine that is uh, certainly scientifically based. And, and yet, as a, as a practitioner who's sitting with a patient <laughs> who has a story and who is bringing their life story to you in that room for those few minutes. And and we know that uh, from a lot of the research, the doctors often miss that story. And they miss important uh, elements of the story that could help them in their diagnosis and treatment of the patient, because they so quickly make a decision about what uh, the diagnosis is, and once they do that, once they have that story in place, very difficult for them to even admit any other kinds of information, and then that story travels with the patient through the years, and then and then the That's next so practice the next practitioner reads the medical record and then they they are influenced by that story in a way that they can't see other data that's presenting them right in their face and uh so that's that becomes a very interesting exploration of thinking about the the complexities of our relationships with our provider and with ourself and with our story which is uh, uh carries within it often the clues for diagnosis uh I can't remember the author's name who wrote, who uh, was writing on how doctors missed the diagnosis so quickly. And, and uh, there's a terrific story in that book in which a woman who had suffered for like 20 years with all kinds of gastric uh, symptoms and problems, finally a doctor said, put the records aside, said, let's start from the beginning. Tell me, tell me about when this first started when you were a child and began hearing the story afresh and said, you know, I don't think you have X. (laughs) I think you actually have Y. And that was the beginning of that person's healing and and on their road to recovery. And every doctor before that had missed it because they were deeply um, prejudiced by the, the previous stories that had been laid down in their medical record.
0: Oh, that's so true. And there's so much good stuff there. And actually, as I was reading Your book, Story Intelligence. I was thinking about. I was thinking about a couple of things. One was, I think the same book that you're talking about, and I think it's called How Doctors Think. How doctors think.
1: think, How doctors. That's
0: Jerome Cooper. Uh, Jerome. Yeah, I'll I'll look it up and make sure it's in the show notes. And there's a couple of other books in the same kind of terrain, the Patient's story by Lisa, someone who was actually a consultant on. ER or one of those medical series and I was also thinking about narrative medicine because Columbia right. University has a narrative medicine program for, and so for there's some years yeah there's the kernel of that idea about the importance of the patient's story beginning to grow again in medical education I think mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and then, and there are counter pressures, which you know that every provider is, is being pressured to to spend as little time as possible. Yeah. And within that paradigm, so much is missed, and we don't know. We have no way of evaluating the cost of that to the patients, to the system, and it looks it looks more efficient, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, at one level, you know, on a spreadsheet, it looks more efficient, right. but actually, uh, long term, it may be less efficient. We may be doing uh, great harm, actually, because of that. So,
0: well, let's talk about story intelligence, because at the heart of what you do is the application of story in terms of its power for healing and mm-hmm. as a modality for practice. And I can really hear that You're the storm; thunder. it's it's pretty yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah, there's been tornado warnings all in Atlanta this morning. Yeah, so oh my gosh. Yeah, if, I, if, if I'm ducking under the desk during the interview, you I was going why. to say, is there anything special you need to do? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think we're fine.
0: Yeah, so describe just, what you mean by story intelligence. What, what is it and why is it important?
1: So in my work, I uh, at some point with my uh, partner, Scott Livengood, we were, uh, we were beginning to muse about the ways story interweaves its way into every facet of life. And uh, over dinner one night on a napkin, we began mapping that out. So what ways are they? And we began to hypothesize that there are kind of seven dimensions to it. We call them powers, but uh, there are seven dimensions to which uh, we can almost begin to see how story is the lever or integral to everything and that our brains are wired for it so much so that we can't even separate the notion of how we see the world apart from thinking of it as a story. And that those stories actually get wired in uh, neurally. uh, They're neural patterns. There's a notion Donald Hebb came up with a concept probably 50, 60 years ago, neurons that fire together wire together. Right, And so we know that uh, as young people, our children are beginning to learn, and they're they're exploring their world. They're laying down new neural pathways, and they're making connections. Neural connections are happening, and and suddenly new wiring is happening all the time. It would be remarkable to be able to observe that, and and it's still happening for us as adults as well. But at the same time, um, there's a certain degree to which patterns get sort of locked in. And there's great benefit to that. You know, you don't have to be thinking about in the morning when you get out of bed, will the floor meet my feet? And will I not go floating up to the, to the ceiling if I get out of bed? Or you can brush your teeth and read a magazine at the same time. You don't, because, because those patterns that, you know, you can go on automatic pilot and there's great benefit of that. So just as in the mid 1990s, there was a lot of research that was being done on emotions. And Howard Gardner at at Harvard came up with this notion of multiple intelligences back in the 80s. And and a number of other researchers began using the term emotional intelligence. They began to Mm. see that there's something much more important to us than just our intellect and our ability to solve problems intellectually. They saw that emotions were so crucial. And uh, what we've been hypothesizing and beginning to believe is that Actually, with newer research that's being done with MRI machines, where we're putting people in those machines and as they're listening to stories and seeing what's going on neurally and the entrainment that happens between listeners and tellers, is that there may be a a substratum of intelligence that is even more important than the emotional and the intellectual, which is what we're calling story intelligence. And we're saying that that story is so integral to what it means to be a human being is that we can't separate separate our concept of humanity from our concept of story and we can't create a fine line between our neurophysiology and our culture and <laughs> which is transported through stories mm-hmm. and if we think evolutionarily is that probably story in our brain development were almost like stair stepped you know, how is it that we as humans, Homo sapiens, were able to dominate all the other human races that were around? There were other, there were the Neanderthals and the Homo denizens and others. And somehow Homo sapiens, I think, developed the capacity, uh, to tell stories in a way that these other groups couldn't, which allowed them to organize themselves in different ways. Because now I, I could tell you a story. And you now have a picture that you can carry with you. And, and if you tell that same story to a thousand people, now a thousand people have the same story and the same picture in their mind. And now they know how to organize together and come together around a central idea, whether it's protecting the tribe or going out on a hunt to capture a woolly mammoth or whatever it was. And so that allowed for a much more integrated society to pause to happen. And if we look at culture, how are how's cultures transported and, and, and how is it transmitted? It's through stories. And it just so happens that when we have a shared story with all these other people, then we have something in common. We feel like they're one of us. And likewise, at the same level is that when we feel like the people are foreign to us and they're living in a different story, then they're dangerous. So we have to be careful about them because who knows what they what they value. And we develop stories often about the other Mm-hmm. Which can often, as we know, be very tragic and pernicious and exploited by politicians and leaders. And so we have lots of examples of that as well.
0: Well, let's talk about that just a little bit because one of the points you make in the book is that, you know, stories are fractured. We're not sharing a common story. And there are lots of meta narratives that deny the interconnectedness of everything, (laughs) and emphasize, you know, our kind of separateness. Given where we are historically, politically, and given how fractured healthcare has become, how does story start to work its magic in that kind of fractured setting?
1: Yeah, so the first thing that I think is so crucial for us is to understand that we're living in that story. And so what happens so often is those stories live us. And we're unconscious of that. And we, we assume that that's the way the world is. And so we make very profound assumptions about ourselves and others and the world and the systems we're working in and that this is the way, well, this is the way things are and this is the way they have to be or they should be. So first of all, that we have an unconsciousness, the fact that we're swimming in stories, just like a fish is not conscious that they're in water. <laughs> you know, that's just they're, they're surrounded by water. That's all they know. And in some ways we're swimming in stories and we don't realize that. And so there are some powerful stories about what the American healthcare system is. We'll focus on the American healthcare system and, and how it should be. And there's so many stories that are myths. There's a mythology about American healthcare, which those of us who have worked in and around American healthcare uh, know are often way off base Mm-hmm. And and there are political forces that are uh, that would like to keep those myths alive because they benefit from a fractured system. For example, so I believe that we we all can become the author of our stories if we become conscious of them. And and the, it's so interesting. The word author and authority have a common root. So he or she who tells the story becomes the has authority. Right. So who's telling the stories about American healthcare and, and how's, how are those stories being told and what are their motivations for maintaining that story, you know, versus a different story. And so there are competing stories and stories can be used as weapons against other, other groups and other people. And then we don't have often an agreement about even what the, com- there is often a common story, but we're seeing it through very different lenses.
0: Okay.
1: So, uh, if you're a nurse, you see that you see the story of healthcare through a very particular lens. If you're a physician, you see it from a different lens. If you're an administrator, you see it through a different lens. And so, what happens often is that people come to work together uh, with the assumption that we're all working on the same story, but we're not. And so those stories, bringing those stories to light and having conversation about what is the story that we're living here in this hospital, let's just take a hospital, you know, why is it we're having so much harm is happening here, for example. And often we don't look at that story and uh, or it's a complicated story, as we know, it has many layers. You know, Steve Powell, who's our, our colleague, you know, I don't know where this came from, but I learned it from Steve was that, you know, is that hospitals are filled with experts uh, and everyone has gone through extensive years of training <laughs> to develop their expertise in their little narrow area. Uh, right. Yeah. But are, Silence. But are, mm-hmm. yeah. They're very soft, but we don't have expert teams. We don't know anything about teamwork. You know, so we make an assumption because we have a, a staff of experts that they also you know, sort of in the form of osmosis can know how to work well as a team. Mm-hmm. And and that often is a faulty assumption is that, the, you know, the story here is that we're all working, you know, in, you know, in our separate ways in our little silo compartments and the patient suffers because of that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's definitely definitely a critique of healthcare, not only in the US, but also in the UK and other European yeah, health systems sure. to some extent. And certainly something that we hear a lot of in the kind of education context, a lot about siloed learning starts with undergraduate, the medical curriculum, a little less so in the nursing curriculum now than perhaps even a decade ago. But right. but that siloed learning continues right across you know, the learning trajectory. You talk about, you know, one story, different perspectives, but also competing stories happening at the same time in the same institutional or organisational context. And one of the remedies to that fracturing, fragmentation is is the power of listening. And you talk about this in your book. So can you tell us a little bit more about how listening to stories Has a connecting power. And I was really struck by this because I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Mark Nepo. He's a poet.
1: I do know. I do know of Mark's work.
0: He has a wonderful book, 7,000 Ways to Listen, which is just phenomenal, phenomenally rich in terms of layers of listening. And you talked about us Mm. unconsciously swimming in stories. He kind of offers a way to, you know, dive in and, and explore through different ways of listening yeah. uh, to those stories. So I'd love to hear from you so, what you mean by listening and yeah. what its power is.
1: So we know very little about what it means to listen deeply to each other, I think. And uh, we have very little training in that and very little focus on that in our education. We take it very for granted.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, you know, you don't see any courses in the curricula on how to listen deeply. I, you know, you won't. I, I never had a course in it. You know, and I don't think you'll find that course in any nursing or medical school. Um, Agreed. Because we we, ta- we we really assume because we have two ears that we can listen well. Mm-hmm. We might be able to hear, but we may not be able to listen. So you know. Uh, there's been a deep understanding in native cultures that listening is something that has to be nurtured and engendered. So I I knew a wonderful storyteller, Johnny Moses, years ago. And Johnny comes from the Northwest of the United States and and his tribe, uh, he had sort of roots in a variety of tribes, but in, in one of his traditions, they would be telling a story and then he would often just pause in the middle of the story and would not continue, he would sort of look down to the ground and would not continue telling the story until the audience said, Hamakawich, we are listening and he, then he would resume the story, and so from time to time he would pause and, and and if you think of this as a device, especially with children you know who are antsy and moving around and you know how, how do we begin to bring them into the story and be sure that they 're really focused okay. so uh, we have no comparable devices i think in our conversation to even know whether the other person is hearing me or not they're nodding you know Mm -hmm. they may be we don't know but we don't know what's going on are they are they listening to me and how how do we know that they're listening and uh so i talk in the book uh, paul costello actually was kind enough to let me replicate a piece that he had done on listening i can't remember which the end of which chapter that's in I think it's um, on the chapter to unite. You may not have gotten to that yet, (laughs) but Paul's done a lot of work about how do we bring groups together who have been living in competing stories and warring maybe, you know, with great harm to each other because, and and, and doing violence to each other. So he started bringing students from uh, Northern Ireland, from Belfast, Catholic and Protestant students uh, and this was at the height of when there was a really a lot of conflict and there was not a lot of listening room space for hearing each other's story. And because people had grievances, they were filled with grievances and the grievances went back for dozens or hundreds of years sometimes. And uh, so it was very hard for, 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 them to even be in the same room together. He tells that uh, in 1928, there was an event in Belfast in which uh, I think the IRA attacked British soldiers and the Protestants attacked the Irish and by the end of the day 100 homes were destroyed uh, 100 people died 1000 people were injured more homes it, it was it was a disastrous event so that story is still told in the pubs today like it happened yesterday so I love the this metaphor they're pickling in that juice <laughs> You know, and as a young person, if you went with your parents to the pub and you're hearing that story every night, but through the lens of whether you're a Protestant about the terrible things the Irish, the the IRA had done, the the Catholics had done, or if you're going in the Catholic pub, hearing about the Protestants. And so your brain gets pickled in that juice. And I wonder also in healthcare, how much our brains get pickled in, in our own juices of our own points of view about the way things are or could be or should be. So we have not created spaciousness for listening. And there is a, there's really a wonderful metaphor of one, a friend of mine who is a therapist uh, has worked with couples for many years. She calls it crossing the bridge to the other, that the notion is that each of us lives in a foreign land. We assume that we're in the same, we're in the same land. We're all, we assume we're living in the same story, but we're not. We're each living in our own particular story. And if we're curious enough to be able to listen. And so uh, it's a very disciplined approach. So if you and I were a couple and we were Having a conversation. And I first, I, I would have to request permission to come across the bridge <laughs> to <Thanks>. your world. <laughs> and, uh, and if you say, yes, come on over. And but you come over with respect. Uh, I want to be sure that you're coming uh, in with respect. Then for me to really hear what you're saying, to affirm it, to say it makes sense, uh, not to react to it. Cause you know, you may say something I go, well, I disagree with that. Now we're, you know, now I'll suddenly, but I'm in your world. So I think for us to listen well, we have to realize that the other who is apart from us, who's across from us, lives in a different world. And we have to be curious enough to know what's going on in their world, whether it's a patient or -hmm. whether it's another professional we work with. And to be willing to take the time and the space to say, well, that's curious and interesting. Can you tell me more? I didn't know you saw it that way. I didn't know you felt that way. Oh, I didn't know that you understood it that way. Oh, I, I've, I've been seeing it entirely differently. Tell me more about how you see this. So that requires a level of humility, I think, that often is missing uh, among professionals, and it also requires a level of commitment to each other and commitment to the to the relationship. So that's a different kind of contract we often mm-hmm. find in our relationships in healthcare among professionals. Uh, we don't have that kind of shared contract, and uh, you know, I'm thinking like things like. Team steps, for example, which is right
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, here's a, a kind of a system which requires a mutual contract among all that are working there. And that's not an easy thing, as we've seen to initiate and to perpetuate. It degrades pretty quickly. One of the things that has shocked me through the last few years, I'll occasionally run into someone who's working in healthcare and I'll just say, Oh, by the way, do you guys use team steps? And they look at me perplexed, they haven't even heard of it. Oh yeah, we had, we had one training in that, you know? So it, once again, it, it's, it's as though that, oh, I go and take the class yeah. in that, the, le- the lesson in that, uh, you know, and, and, and lightning hits and I understand we all, you know, we have <laughs> suddenly, you know, there's a calamitous moment where we all kind of connect. It requires something much deeper than that. So if we're going to create safe healthcare, we have to create safety in our relationships with our fellow professionals and, I was just and going to
0: say, when you're talking about story, you're talking about relationship, connection, and communication.
1: That's right, yeah. And so that requires, and so we have to create space and time for that. Mm-hmm. And if we're all so busy that we don't have the space and time to even talk together, then uh, how could we ever know what's going on with the other person, what's going on in their world, you know, mm-hmm. what across the bridge, and so, so often what happens is coming back to the patient is that we, we tend to be so mechanical in the way we uh, interact with patients. It's scripted often. And, you know, having been a, a patient a few times in, in the hospital for some surgeries, uh, and when people come in with that script, I bristle. <laughs> you know? And occasionally someone comes in who's authentic and And when they say, "How are you doing today? What's going on?" You know I, th- I feel like they really they really want to know what's going on, and then they're, mm-hmm. they're they're pausing and they're listening deeply. and so that is something that isn't easily trained. It has to be it has to be grown or cultivated, I think. It's not just a you know a, okay, this is a skill that an instructional designer can can, can do one, two, three, and we do these mm-hmm. practices, and now I got it." that's cultivating something deeper. And I think story is very well suited, the power of story is very well suited to engendering that. So we as human beings, you know, the question is how, how do we become so empathic? How do we develop empathy for mm-hmm. others? And I think it's only in knowing the other's story that we develop that capacity. And there's, so, there's been so much work that's been done in literature and people reading people's stories that it changes how they feel about people who, before they read that story, they may have had a, a negative attitude toward. So this is the role, I think, of literature in medical training, is that if we want to develop and cultivate within medical professionals a deep empathy for, for human beings, there's probably no better way to do that than through the power of literature and art. Because well, everyone should read Chekhov. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. What, if, what if we all read Chekhov? As part of our medical training, you wouldn't be able to go in and listen to and look at a patient in the same way ever again. You know, you suddenly, you have a much more complex being there who's standing before you.
0: I think that's really interesting. One of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking about communication and listening to patients is, you know, there has been a lot of work in the last couple of decades. I'm thinking of Ronald Epstein's work on patient-provider interaction and communication. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of work around, particularly around patient-provider relationships that are not race concordant in terms of the disconnection in the communication and a lot of work around how can we make those communicative relationships better. But of course, and, and Ronald Epstein's work. Focuses on empathy as well. But one of the things that happens is in that work is that empathy is seen as a skill that can be learned, that people can be trained to do. But what I'm hearing from you is that's a little transactional, that's a little mechanistic. We have to go even deeper.
1: Yeah. You know, if we look at this metaphorically, we think of it as okay, we're all going to go to empathy class. And we're going to learn the three skills of empathy or whatever they are. You know, it's been broken down into nice pieces, right? Uh, that's different than the metaphor of growing empathy, cultivating one's empathy. Mm-hmm. And that is not something that's done in a one hour class or a three hour class or in a classroom that is something that's done uh, that I think only can be accomplished over a period of time. And once again, through the arts, through story, through literature, and that's developing an internal capacity to be with the other, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: to be in their space, to really, uh, as we say, metaphorically walk in their shoes, you know, (laughs) or to be in their shoes. And, you know, I think that for doctors that's hard and that's difficult, Uh, for patients. I I knew a physician in Orlando a number of years ago, and uh, he had to go through some procedure that was very painful and difficult, a procedure that he used to administer to patients for years.
0: okay,
1: And not until that happened, it changed him profoundly. He never understood. He realized he had been somewhat callous all those years. He just, it, for him, it was just a mechanistic procedure, and, mm-hmm. and, and he treated the pain as sort of, don't worry about it, you know, we'll mm-hmm. take this or whatever. And it changed him profoundly to have gone through that. And there are lots of examples in the literature of doctors who themselves have gone through difficult things, and, and suddenly it's changed how they see mm-hmm. medicine and the, and the treatment of patients. And, and they don't walk into that patient's room the same person anymore.
0: Right. They There's a transformation in. there. Yeah. Uh,
1: so, you know, we don't, we don't all have to um, have a heart transplant to be able to become more uh, heartful in our work, but we have to be open to the soul of, of art mm-hmm. to be able to, to discover that the soul of the person sitting across from us, I think.
0: Oh, so, I love that expression, the soul of, of art. Can you talk a little bit then about how does story work in the context of learning in teams in the healthcare setting.
1: Yeah, well, you, you I think, in our pre notes, we talked about this product Story Care that I was on the team of developing. So to understand that, um, we need to go back in time uh, to a teacher of mine, Paula Underwood, who was Native American, came from the Oneida tradition, and in her tradition they didn't even have a word for teach. So that's a very f- interesting, fascinating thing. Uh, the closest kind of transliteration would be enabler of learning. So they understood that people who were teachers, uh, they were more guides or they were enablers. They enabled learning and mm-hmm. they understood that there was this powerful uh, reagent <laughs> think of it in terms of that was called story and that that worked on our brains in a certain particular kind of way that allowed us to make new connections and to learn new perspectives and points of view and so what story does uh when we hear a story we find with the uh the MRI studies that are being done, we find that it's actually engaging all the sensory aspects of the brain. They're all getting activated as well as the language uh, centers for comprehension and understanding. And so what happens is there's the potential for new neural connections, new possible perspectives, insights that can arrive when we're hearing a story that don't, occur if we're just hearing a concept in language. So if someone's giving us a lecture on a particular topic and they're presenting mm-hmm. slides with lots of data, uh, it doesn't actuate all that other neural activity. So what you get is, is a rich enactment of a story that is both visual and auditory and, and is sensed and felt. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. And so the Native Americans understood that, uh, that that was something powerful. And so they would start at a very young age and start telling children stories. And they would never tell them what they meant because they understood that that short-circuited the learning process. Mm. So if I say, here's the story, and it's you know, in our Western tradition of fables, and we tell the story and say, and therefore, children, this and don't ever go into those dark woods again you know, by yourself, there won't be any learning. There won't be the connection. There won't be the grappling, the engagement, and so they uh, they developed a process of reflection that sounds. If when you hear it, it sounds very Socratic. So you wonder where Socrates and Plato. Where did they? Where did that come from? You know, you know, did they? I don't think they invented it themselves. I think they were just passing on what had become a very uh, common understanding about how we learn. Is they would tell the story and say, "What might we learn from this?" And then they would shut up, and they would let uh, you know. A five-year-old hearing the story would say, "Oh, well, I think it means you know." I, and they they would see one point of view, and the elder would always affirm it. They go, "Oh, that's interesting. Right? Tell me more about that. Oh, you see it that way. Oh, and then maybe at age ten they hear the story again, and now." They have a whole different pattern of brain. Their brain is a whole different brain. It's metamorphized, <laughs> and there's this wonderful research and work being done on children's brains. And they, and we just think that adults are just sort of uh, kind of uh, extensions of children. But children, I don't think so. It talks about childhood being a time for exploration, and our, we're making just huge, massive connections. And then adults, we become more exploiters of what we already know, and we often lose that childlike. Uh, ability to explore and see afresh. And, you know, we often, poets talk about that, you know, and mm-hmm. artists talk about that is keeping fresh eyes so that we can not get tied in with one point of view. So with story care, what we, we were starting to look at, we were saying, how could we engage teams to learn quicker and have deeper insight into their own practice and how they could improve their practice. Now, we could have said, here are the five lessons you need to learn how to improve teamwork and communication. And we could send them to a class, and here are the five things you need to know about teamwork and communication. Or we could have them listen to a story, and in the story, the patient is harmed. And in the story, they were harmed because there was a breakdown of teamwork and communication. And so what did we do? We took that ancient question, what might you learn from the story? And we said, what might we learn from this story? And then the team gets to debrief it. So, you know, we, we call this like very low fidelity simulation. There was no mannequin. There was, it was just the story, but the team then gets to reflect on the impact of the breakdown of communication for the team about in the story they're listening to. And inevitably it leads to themselves and they go, oh, you know, this this sounds very much like something that happened here last week, or that was last month when we had that event where a patient we almost lost a patient, or maybe you know, it was a tragedy, and we lost the patient. And the other component of that is emotion. Stories carry an emotional thread with them, and so they engage us. There's something at stake here in this mm-hmm. event, with the, you know, it's not just uh, I once heard the description of a, uh, of a case study. Someone came up to me uh, after I was giving a talk at a healthcare conference. And they said, you know what the difference between uh, a story and a case study is? And, he, and I said, no, what is it? He said, well, he says a case study is, uh, is an act of reverse alchemy. Taking gold and turning it into lead.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I
1: just I, that stuck with me, obviously, and um, and so you know we'll often use case studies in our in our training. You know, we have a patient, fifty three years old, has these comorbidities, and you know, so it's been very it's it's been very sanitized, okay, and we can have a nice intellectual conversation about it. But if we suddenly hear a story where a patient who's 53 years old is brought into the emergency room and then, you know they're hemorrhaging. And one of the, the stories that we developed in at story Care, I, I knew a neurosurgeon and uh, we were working on some other projects. And, and I met him for breakfast one day and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I've had a terrible week. And I said, But what happened? And he tells me this story, which we ended up developing with his permission. Uh, one night he gets a call, two in the morning. And a patient has been brought into the ER and with a cerebral hemorrhage and the, the head of the ER calls him and he says, I, I think, I think we got, you know, we've called AirVAC to air this person to Boston, but suddenly their vitals are, are really doing some weird things here. And I think we got the diagnosis wrong. Can you be here? And he's able to call up the film and see it. And he says, yeah, that mm-hmm. you got it wrong. I'm coming right now. And he drove like a bat in hell and he got there in 15 minutes, you know, and, and comes running into the ER, And you know, they want to drill a hole into the person's brain to relieve the brain. And they have a kit there. I can't remember the name of the kit. And there's two kind of two big brands that make the kits. And one of the kits does not come with a little piece of plastic. That's a kind of a spout kind of thing.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
1: It doesn't come with that. So he says, I, I need, I need one, you know, get one, get me one of these things. And they says give, give, me this, give me the shears. The shears weren't charged. I think he threw him against the wall. He's a very fiery. I have worked guy. with
0: surgeons like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was flipped out. He just threw it. Give me another pair. And someone comes running with another. It wasn't charged either. So now they're having wow. to use scissors to you know, and they're looking for this little valve. Okay. Does anybody have one? No, they can't find it. They're looking everywhere in all the cabinets and says, well, I think so-and-so up in the operating or, you know, the third floor operating has it and they call up there and they're in the middle of a, an emergency C-section and they're running short. There's, they have no, no other people in the, and everybody is you know, scrubbed up in there and the, the nurse answers the phone and says, I, I know where they are, but I can't get it because I'm, I'm in, I'm in, you know, and here he is. And the flight, the, the flight crew and their people are saying, what are we going to do here? What's You know, what's the story. And everybody's in tears. The nurses are standing around. They're helpless, and he is helpless to do anything. And this is like a 10 cent piece of plastic because of that. So, you know, that you you listen to that story and then debrief it. And boy, it hits you right in the stomach. And then you start asking the question are we prepared? Have, you know all the things that you know, things like a pair of shears being charged. Are you know, are, are we prepared for the for the exceptional event that could come in here to save mm-hmm. a life? So that 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 engages people differently than if I did a case study about uh, you know a thirty five year old woman who has a cerebral hemorrhage is brought into the hospital. They weren't able to it's all the rich that detail of what had happened there
0: mm-hmm.
1: with the breakdown of the system would have been lost. I hear that. So that's what story can capture for us, and that's what it can elicit in us, and it can force us to be in the story. So when we hear that story, we inevitably identify with a character or characters in the story. We become that character. We become the doctor. We become the nurse who can't find the piece of plastic. And we enter into the story in a raw kind of visceral way. And that's where real learning can happen, I think. And so, so much of medicine has nothing to do with the techniques (laughs) of how you would you know, drill a hole in the person's head to relieve the pressure. It has to do with the relationships and all the other stuff that comes with that. And how do you replicate that in an environment? I'm working with some people who do a lot of work in virtual reality now, and we're having some interesting conversations. Could we in VR put people uh, in a situation where we could reproduce the, the richness of those kinds of situations so people could really deal with them, you know, in a, in a real way in mm-hmm. VR, you know, with a real patient in VR and uh, having to, you know, deal with the breakdowns of all that. And could we change people that way? So anyway, I mean, that's, that's what story does for us. And that's yeah. how it works on us. And that's how it engages us as an audience. And when you pair reflection, the process of reflection with that, something powerful happens. And the native peoples understood that. Plato understood that. And I think uh, we've just more and more understanding that creating space for reflection on practice becomes crucial. You can practice, 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 but if you don't take time occasionally to step back and say, what am I learning here? What's missing here? What, what do I understand now about this, now that I've been doing this for a while? What are the edges that I need to develop more? Without those kinds of questions, then I think I think we lose a lot.
0: Rick, do you think that like listening, reflection is something that... It takes time to develop and has to be grown, particularly among professionals. You know, reflection is one of these things that you know it's it's all over the education literature, right? Sure. And and certainly, you know, people in the healthcare education field will be familiar with the importance of of reflection. But certainly, in in professional education and continuing medical education, although. We talk about it a lot. It's really challenging to build reflection into education programs and activities. And then the other side of that is, what is it we're talking about when we talk about reflection? Because for story, reflection is critical. You, you need that time. You need that space, as you said. To understand the story and your place in it. So can you talk a little bit about sure. what you mean by reflection, what it looks like, and how mm-hmm. we can start to think about yeah. building that into mm-hmm. adult learning? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so we we talk about it in a very broad sense, and we we assume that everybody can do it. <laughs> you know So I think like listening, as you said, um, I think it is something that develops uh, requires development and requires space and time. So we rarely create space and time in the, in the healthcare field for reflection. It's not valued. We don't value reflection. We give it lip service, but we don't value. If we valued it, then we would make it a priority and give it space and time. So I think that's the first thing is that we don't value it. And if we did, um, then we would have people after sentinel events or, or where there's an emergency C-section you would have people taking time out to say, let's go into a room and let's have a conversation about what just happened. What might we learn here from what Mm -hmm. just occurred? What could we have done better? Where did things break down here? And can we look at it with clarity and without blame? So, but there there are other taxonomies of reflection. You know, Peter Pappas has developed one. You mentioned that, and, and I found that very useful. And it's actually really thinking about it from a story perspective, and so Pappas has a you know, hierarchy or a taxonomy of reflection. And he talks about uh, the first step is remembering. What, oh. what, what do we do? <laughs> yeah. And, and we may have different stories about that, especially as a team. You know, okay. Uh, what happened here? And depending upon where you were in the room and what your role was. Okay. So how do we begin? And, and let's not make the other story wrong. Oh, you have that story. Oh, you, okay. I, I, I didn't see that. I couldn't have seen that because where I was standing, I wouldn't have been able to see that. Or I didn't have that as a lens. Then he has understanding what, what's important about that. What is important about that? And once again, each of us may have different, different ways of uh, finding th- things of import. I may see it differently. Uh, the third level is applying it. Where, where where can I use this again? So where where might we apply this? Mm. And then analyzing, uh, are, are there any patterns here? Is this like other things that have been going on here? Has this been going on here for a while? What, where else uh, has this gone on? And and then he talks about evaluating. Well, how well did, did I do? How well did we do? Okay, well, we mm. didn't do so well. Could we, how could we do better? And then creating, what should I do next? What can we do next? And, and I find that to be a, a wonderful structure for conversation. Mm. And uh, But once again, if, I, if we create spaces for that conversation, and these are, these are six simple questions. If we ask these six simple questions and we listen, coming back to listening, respectfully to the way each of us sees it without trying to negate your way of seeing it, Mm-hmm. But to be curious, oh, you see it that way. Oh, well, tell me more about that. Oh, that might inform my thinking in a different way. Um, there's a wonderful teacher, Nancy Klein, who's been one of my other teachers in my life. And she talks about how we think better. And so she talks about the, the power of thinking and, and, and how do we create better meetings. And she talks about have going in around. Mm. And so if I know that uh, we're going to go around and hear each person, and I know I'm going to have a chance, I don't have to be sitting there trying to formulate what I'm going to say. I can listen to what you're going to say. Right. And by the time it comes to me, the thing that I initially thought I was going to say, suddenly my thinking has been informed by the deep thinking of the five people who preceded me. And Mm -hmm. suddenly you say, I go, oh, I see it differently now.
0: Now, That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So if we can create that kind of uh, space in healthcare. And I'm not sure what it would take to get there because, you know, one of the big insights I had was that healthcare is not a learning, there, there is no such thing as a healthcare learning organization. Healthcare is not interested in learning. We assume all the learning happened before people arrive to come work there. And so we have not created, there is no recognition that that healthcare organizations need to be learning organizations. And I haven't seen one, I have yet to see one that I would say even comes close. Mm-hmm. So that requires uh, a whole cultural shift in healthcare. is that we have to become invested in learning. And if we're going to do that, then we have to be invested in giving people time to reflect and time to, to listen to each other. And that doesn't look very effective and efficient on a, a spreadsheet.
0: No, I, I can see that. I, I think the other part of that is... In order to hold that time and space, you need a facilitator. So I'm curious, when you are using these tools to encourage health professionals to reflect, to to listen to other people's stories, is this a facilitated process?
1: Yeah, I think it has to be, at least initially. You know, a, te- a team that's done it a lot probably... Can get pretty good at it and, and won't need another person in the room to keep people focused and on task because uh, people's patterns of behavior uh, will will overtake the the process and kind of degrade it <laughs> with maybe very quickly. So yeah, I think you need you, it needs to be facilitated, especially in the beginning, so that people a team can begin to learn it. Um, you think about team steps and how in the early days when that was start being pushed out, you know, it was, it was trained and facilitated and the facilitator would be there in the operating room, being sure that the, you know, everything was going. And at some point, everybody has, uh, has ingested it and it's become part of the culture. It's the way we do things around here and -hmm. everybody sort of tacitly knows the rules of how we do it together. And if someone is sort of stepping out of that bound, people can say, hey, Jack, you know, remember, we don't do that second. We do that third. Oh, Mm -hmm. thanks. You know, so the team can become self-correcting. So if we really were invested in doing this, yeah, we'd have to have, uh, we'd have to create the space and have teams of facilitators, somebody who could come in and just who knows the story (laughs) that we're going to try to work on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Two questions just to finish up. What are you working on now and where can listeners find you?
1: Sure. I'm working on this broad idea that story intelligence is a, an essential part of culture and is essential for our survival as a human race. So I have a big vision about uh, education, about uh, business in the corporate world, and about spreading this idea so that uh, we're all wising up to the fact that we live and breathe stories and that we can become the authors of our stories. So I'm sort of on this trek now to figure out how do we do that in a big way. And uh, so I'm thinking about a TV show actually right now. <laughs> if you think about Neil deGrasse Tyson, who does his wonderful show on yeah. the universe. Well, what if there was this fabulous show on the power of story in our lives? Love it. And, um <laughs> So I'm exploring that right now with some people. And if people want to reach me, they can go to storyintelligence.com. That's the name of the book. And there's obviously plenty of places to contact there. But there's also lots of resources where I've got my own little uh, talk show that I've been doing called Explorations. And I'm interviewing people who are just remarkable experts on the power of story. So in each one Wonderful. of those interviews, uh, so there's I, I'm working on one right now, a guy named Sam McGill who is a coach of coaches. He's a supervisor of coaches and he talks about the poetics of coaching. And so I'm actually editing that right now to be posted up there so they can find me at storyintelligence.com.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Rick Stone. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
0: Alex. Story is a kind of low fidelity simulation. When we hear a story, a good story, we inevitably identify with a character or characters in the story, we become the character, we become the doctor, we become the nurse who can't find the piece of plastic, as was the case in Rick's story. And we enter into the story in a raw and often visceral way, and that's where real learning can happen. In order to enter the story though, we need to be able to listen and apply taxonomies of reflection to learning. And I wonder how we're building time and opportunity for developing and practicing those skills into continuing healthcare education. Thanks for spending this time with me and Rick. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can email me or write a podcast review. Until next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is right medicine.